0: Today podcast. I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday.
1: And I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday.
0: And this week, it's just us. <laughs> Kaylee are going to kick off this year by kind of talking about our expectations for the year, the trends that we're expecting to see, especially based on conversations we've been having towards the end of 2022 with buyers and sellers and ad tech executives and basically as many people as we could get on the phone or Zoom to figure out what the hell's going on in 2023? Uh, Kaylee, you finished off 2022, with, as I mentioned, with a lot of conversations you were having with execs on the media side of things. What were the big takeaways that you had in terms of what they're anticipating 2023, or at least the first part of 2023 to be looking like?
1: Yeah. So that first part of 2023, I think is the key phrase there. Um, so far, a lot of the conversations I've had with CROs and CEOs on the media side have been really kind of focused on not being able to expect what's coming in a week's time, let alone a full year. So we've been really sticking to that first six months time period when we're talking about um, areas of focus or um, expectations for 2023. Um, by and large, what I'm hearing is that There's a lot of optimism for second half of 2023, but the first half is going to be a little bit of a struggle point. And I think it's going to rely on a lot of lessons learned in 2020 to make sure they can pivot in a moment's notice and cut costs if needed. So obviously, we're already seeing a lot of the cost-cutting with layoffs or selling off real estate, which our colleague Sarah Guaglione has done a great job of covering. Um, that's just going to be continued. And one of the conversations I had with Jason Wagenheim at BDG was really talking about you know those important lessons that you learn um, when you're getting like an MBA about managing costs on a you know leadership level and just really getting textbook about how to approach things in an economically challenging period. So I think there is so much uncertainty with what is going to happen, how bad the economy will actually get. But because there is, I think, the expectation that it's going to be bad and it's not going to be coming out of nowhere, there's hopefully some optimism around getting through it relatively unscathed or as you know, little scarring as possible. Um, that's what I've been hearing. Definitely first six months are going to be troublesome. What are you hearing, Tim?
0: Yeah, it's funny. There was one person I talked to on the, the brand side of things, actually. And they were the ones who was like, oh, it's weird because in spring 2020, there was all the talk around a double dip recession. And so for those of us who took that talk seriously... This isn't all that surprising. So they've been managing their business, like they manage their business coming into 2022, with the expectation that there may have been something of a false spring in 2021. Um, and so they feel they feel okay. I'm not going to say they feel great. I don't think anyone's feeling great about the state of the economy at the moment. But they feel like we kind of were expecting the worst, and it feels like the worst may be on its way obviously with the hope that that isn't the case um but yeah it definitely feels like we were joking for years about like oh god it feels like 2020 won't end and it still feels that way it just feels less of a joke like you were saying Mm -hmm. a lot of the conversations i'm having with people have the echoes of spring 2020 of you know, we just need to kind of mind our costs as a business. Um, we don't really have much visibility into revenue or how, um, the ad market's going to be shaking out. And so we're just going to try to, you know, be in communication with a lot of folks, be as flexible as possible, which I mean, that's kind of all you can do right now. Cause uh, I don't know, like I'm I've been talking, you know, recently with a lot of like TV ad buyers and sellers about the upfront. And so I kind of look at that as something of a canary in the coal mine because they're already starting to like prepare a bit for what they expect the upfront next year to look like and for anyone listening who's not super in the weeds on the TV ad business, the upfront's basically just like this yearly cycle where over summer TV networks and advertisers and their agencies figure out how much money a brand or an agency is going to commit to spend with that TV network for the next year. And so these are big commitments. I mean, it's similar to like leasing a car, leasing a house, like you go in, this isn't you know an impulse purchase. And so they're already trying to figure out how much money are we actually going to be willing to invest, especially because the upfront negotiations are going to be kicking off right around that time that you mentioned where things may be looking better at that point, or things may have gotten so much worse at that point that they aren't looking all that better or enough better.
1: I mean, it's also interesting with how you kind of called it a false spring because I do think that unlike 2020, the economic downturn that we're seeing now, the writing was on the wall. We've been talking about it since pretty much February to a degree. And granted, there were some global um, events like, you know, Russia invading Ukraine that I think tipped off some of that um, uncertainty in the ad market. But we've been talking about this for quite some time. So I do feel like the execs that I've been talking to um, on the media side and on the buy side have been preparing to a degree about um, what this will ultimately turn out to be. And I I do think that there are, I mean, we've been hearing for months that the expectation was the, you know, use this lovely term, the shit will hit the fan in 2023, right? So like there is this sense of preparedness that I think is a unique advantage to this downturn versus in 2020, spring 2020. um, Obviously, spring 2020 rebounded quite quickly, um, and that fall-spring was interesting because for the execs that I don't think were paying as close of attention to the larger economic trends, meaning like that secondary recession coming later – There was a lot of bloating that happened, too, and a lot of kind of chasing after revenue streams that might not have been as permanent. And I think I'm thinking more around, like, Web3 innovation or, uh, you know, kind of more of the crypto stuff. Like, that was really great revenue to get when you could get it, but it wasn't long term. So... I'm curious for you know the cohort of publishers that were getting really experimental or were investing in specific teams that maybe add more overhead than revenue right now, if there's going to be more layoffs in the coming year, kind of around that area. I think experimental budgets are not going to be as full in 2023, at least for the first half. So, I mean, and that's just not in the web, like not solely dedicated to Web3. I think that's in other areas, like perhaps investing in um, like VR or more, uh, you know, tech-oriented things or even just for businesses that haven't had a a super big events um, business in the past or, you know, experimental can mean a lot of things for publishers based on where their businesses are. But I do think that, the tried and true businesses might be the ones that publishers cling to because, you know, they're going to invest in where the revenue is known to come from. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting. The, the false spring thing, I do think maybe tricked a few people. Mm -hmm. So.
0: Yeah. And then it's interesting because even like on the cost cutting side of things, there's the consideration of, oh. W- which costs can actually we afford to cut and, and not so much, you know, just necessarily like, Oh, uh, which, you know, teams can we cut or like experimental budgets, but like in, you know, streaming the big, you know, one of the big stories at the moment is just how much money these companies, whether it's Netflix or Disney or Paramount or NBC or certainly Warner Brothers discovery, have spent on programming for their streaming services, and how they aren't generating enough revenue to give that clearer sense on when they can turn a profit. And so they've been dialing back their programming budgets. The you know some of them aren't buying like Warner Bros. Discovery went on a whole pause over the summer around you know how much it was buying, or they're looking to buy cheaper shows um, and you know not necessarily spending so much on like so the so-called premium stuff. But then that creates the question of like, okay, but if you just invest in lower quality stuff, can you expect the audiences to be there? Are they going to recognize, oh, I'm paying eight, nine, 10, $15 a month for this service. And like the stuff on it isn't as good anymore. So I'm not going to pay for it as much. And so that's feels like a very real tension, not only just in stream, but I feel like across the board. There was a media exec I was talking to recently about, um, like they do a lot in the digital video, social video space. And they were just like, we aren't making enough money from Snapchat, from our Snapchat Discover channel. And we're only spending a thousand dollars an episode on the videos we make there, but we're making like 30 videos a month. And so even though cutting it out like that isn't a huge cost center. To what extent can we even afford to have that cost or not?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, kind of getting into that social short form vertical video conversation, right? Because I think publishers are kind of taking their video content approach in two directions. um, One of which is kind of what you were saying around programming for streamers, I do think that there's still a lot of investment into creating and then trying to sell shows um, for publisher studios. Like uh, We've seen a decent amount of investment still, I think, around that. Curious if maybe the budgets for buying content shrink um, on the streamer side next year. But on the flip side, publishers are also embracing short-form vertical video because it is significantly cheaper to produce. I mean, to your point around Snapchat Discover, and I, I do think that that platform is a slightly different place. And one of the criticisms that I, I've heard from another publisher um, for a, a piece I wrote about Um, what publishers would like to see from platforms in 2023 was that the ad formats on Snapchat Discover aren't as robust as other platforms. So it could be like an advertising kind of issue, perhaps. But for platforms like TikTok and YouTube Shorts and Reels, the less polished the piece of content, the better it tends to perform, at least based on the Numerous publishers I've spoken with, you know, the whole idea of having a personality driven piece of content that was created in the app and edited using the tools that are native to the app still seems to be performing pretty well as publishers more embrace these platforms. So I'm wondering if that will help save some costs if maybe there's fewer projects going through the studio route and more. Projects that are being filmed in an office setting, you know, that are being filmed with people who are kind of just fitting it into their daily schedule and are able to edit it on a mobile device um, in a shorter turnaround time. So I do think that we've seen a pretty significant, I don't want to say pivot back to video necessarily, but there's been a significant pivot towards like short form vertical video um, on the publisher side. And from a cost standpoint, that could potentially work in their favor if they are embracing the fact that audiences on some platforms like TikTok and YouTube Shorts are okay with the you know more rougher quality, I guess.
0: Yeah, but that all depends on how much revenue these publishers are able to get from those platforms. And like, I mean, TikTok Pulse launched in testing in 2022, um, but it was very much in testing, like, you know, through the end of the year, I was still hearing from creators, like, you know, the Friday before, you know, we're talking here, I got an email from a creator asking about the terms of the TikTok Pulse program, because they're not so sure on like, what all TikTok's asking of them. I don't wanna divulge too much, much more, cause I'm gonna hopefully report that out sooner than later. Mm-hmm. But like, there's also, so like one, invites are still going out to creators and to publishers to be part of TikTok's program. YouTube hasn't launched shorts yet. Like, um, according to, you know, the banner YouTube puts in YouTube creator studio, the revenue program for shorts is launching in February. And so there's still going to be that time needed to assess like how much revenue is going to be coming in to creators and publishers through shorts. But then also like how reliable is that revenue going to be? Because it was only, I think May of 2022, when YouTube started running ad, like Shorts ads, selling those to advertisers, and so so Extender advertisers are actually buying that stuff. And then there's the because things aren't complicated enough, the challenge of the differences in how TikTok and YouTube Shorts are going to be calculating rev share. Like TikTok with TikTok Pulse, it's basically a post-roll program, but not every video from a creator or a publisher qualifies for it it's just the top four percent of videos on the platform so you could be a publisher a creator who qualifies for revenue and have absolutely none of your videos actually get a rev share in a given month um, or you could get the rev share one month and then not get any the next month and then with youtube shorts there's kind of a funkier calculus going on with youtube shorts where It's basically a monthly pool where YouTube sells shorts ads and then it will pay off the record labels that it's licensing music from. And so then it takes that net ad revenue and YouTube's going to keep 55% and give the creators and the publishers 45%, which one flips the revenue model for legacy YouTube where creators and publishers are getting 55% of the revenue. Now for shorts, YouTube gets 55% of the revenue, but then it also you're just getting a pool, like a piece of the pool. And so it's not like right now where creators and publishers, like if you're a finance channel on YouTube, your CPMs are a lot higher. So you don't need to get as many views to make $100,000, a million dollars in a month. But if it's all just getting shared from the same pool, then you don't really get the CPM advantages to know, oh, my content is quality content and so deserves X more money or is more desirable content. And so, I mean, that's just, I think one of the biggest questions, at least when it comes to like the video, the digital publishing and video space that I have this year is just how that's going to shake out.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, to that point, one of the stories I wrote at the end of 2022 was about um, how publishers are approaching YouTube Shorts given the, given the fact that revenue is supposedly coming uh, in February. But one of, I mean, the biggest, you know, kind of strategy around it is building up audience, but really driving that audience to their longer form content. Because obviously it's a more legacy, um, a legacy rev share there. They know what they're making. And YouTube is, I think, one of the Better, if not the best, platform in terms of payouts for creators. So right now there's just a lot of focus of yes, there's a from from what I've been hearing from publishers, there's a decent audience on YouTube Shorts, but the biggest kind of opportunity is just translating the shorts audience into long form viewers. And I mean, depending on the YouTube programming and you know what audiences want that could bring in some production costs again. Like, I mean, I haven't really crunched the numbers on what it goes into making, like a, a YouTube like talk show or something like a publisher might do, like hot ones. I don't know how much that would cost, right? But depending on how this RevShare program ends up working on YouTube Shorts, the long-term strategy might still for publishers be getting them over to longer form content. Something that TikTok has not been able to figure out necessarily. Although it seems like advertisers really still love tiktok i don't know at least that's what I, i've been kind of picking up on so short form vertical content seems promising based on what like quarterly earnings say like buzzfeed seems very gung-ho on that but you're but right there are a lot of, there. <laughs> yeah, there, there's like no revenue there yet so it's it's very interesting like the amount of publishers that are just saying, like, how exciting this area is, like, is it just another 2016 trap? You know, are they going to get stuck without money and, you know, cause another round of layoffs? And who knows? We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back.
0: Short form video has been tricky for publishers and creators for years, for like ever, because like, you know, there was, you know, the hope with snapchat you know discover you know for one and then eventually quibi that oh there's going to be a market for premium short form shows like tv quality shows but that are short form that never manifested um facebook and youtube had invested in original programming for a time they couldn't make that work um and not for fault of the shows that were being made necessarily like Cobra Kai didn't work as a YouTube original, but then it goes on to Netflix and it becomes a big hit for Netflix. So some of it's just like the expectations of the platform. And so I I think you hit on another really interesting question is like, can TikTok break beyond kind of the types of videos it's known for? It's been trying, like it's, you know, lengthen the Expanded the you know duration of videos to I think like ten minutes. I don't remember. if They're just testing ten minutes still, or if that's been more widely. I can't brought, remember the brought, last
1: time. I can't remember the last time I saw a ten minute long TikTok.
0: Yeah, I've seen some that have gone you know beyond uh, a minute pretty regularly, but and there was a period in which they were testing um, putting a marker like denoting whether it was a plus one minute video or not. They, I haven't seen that in months, um, but like within the past week as we're talking, so like mid, de- mid to late December, um, there was some report, I forget who I saw it by, but that TikTok is testing the ability to watch horizontal videos on TikTok, which makes sense. It would help to get TikTok in that kind of that YouTube league. Um, but the second thing I thought when I saw that was just like, oh, I remember when Instagram did this with IGTV. And I remember the story I wrote that was not very complimentary of them making that move. And there was a lot of skepticism and that proved to be correct that like it didn't work. I mean, IGTV doesn't even exist anymore. And so I think it is going to be like, there is a lot of momentum going TikTok's way, but that doesn't guarantee success for TikTok, especially not if it gets banned
1: and the other challenges with TikTok too is like obviously there's still a lot of friction for users trying to click out or you know engaging with ads. I do think the ad experience has gotten a little bit better speaking from a user experience myself, but there is still I think a lot of friction with it, it really feels like TikTok does not want you to leave the app. And that makes sense, you know. obviously. Uh, any platform is going to want you to stay on the platform. But it's going to be a very interesting user experience case once they try to get you to watch longer form content. Because, yeah, I don't want to watch 10 minutes in a, a vertical kind of format. That's, to me, not the best experience. I like the quick scrolling function. And YouTube, obviously, it's a horizontal platform for me. That's why I, I personally haven't used YouTube Shorts at all. I haven't. They don't come up. I don't really find the appeal of it, although I spend way too much time on TikTok, so I know that there's a, a user kind of case study for it. But it's just I think the user experience and getting users comfortable with the change is going to be a really significant challenge, I think. That's probably what Instagram's biggest challenge has been lately, too, is the user changes. Like, I wrote a story a couple months ago now when they announced that they were adding a bunch of new ad slots on the platform. And it's a really big question of like, how many ads are people are going to actually be okay with consuming? Like, in feed, like, there's no, it seems like there's no place safe on the app from ads at this point. So, I don't know. I feel like users are very, in tune with what platforms are doing at this point. And that could be perhaps the biggest challenge for platforms and publishers and advertisers in the 2023 as well. Just making sure the user stays happy and nothing changes too, too much to ruin their experience. The TikTok though, it's just a really, it has really deep habits that are formed on the platform. So it'll be curious to see how they get around those challenges.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, Instagram, like it's, it's funny how easy it is to go Talking with folks in like the social video space and not hit on Instagram, like it's very much like a couple years ago where it was pretty easy to do that and not hit on Facebook. And, and like, I feel like another you know couple of things that I haven't like talked with folks as much about lately, um, and didn't don't feel like I talked to folks as much about in twenty twenty two as I would have expected to a year ago at this point was like email and email newsletters. Like, I mean, they're still obviously a part of the mix. We publish a good amount of them. You and I both have our own newsletters at Digiday and outlets are still putting them out. But I wonder to what extent that starts to subside maybe even more in 2023. Um, Because like, I mean, Facebook obviously tried it with Bulletin, that didn't work. Um, there have been a number of newsletter writers that were part of the Substack program that have stopped being or that have gone to like the Atlantic. But even then, I feel like there have been changes in the makeup of publishers own newsletter teams or you know, folks that have brought on as newsletter writers predominantly.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, in kind of getting back to that, like publisher versus platform conversation a little bit. Um, I do think that publishers are looking for more owned and operated channels to, I mean, the revenue is just going to be a little bit better when you don't have to share it with a platform, right? So I do think that there's some focus on newsletters. You know, when I was covering Q4 Commerce Strategies, Publishers were still very much saying that newsletters were strong places for um, driving, you know, conversions in in commerce businesses, talking to BDG's Jason Wagenheim again. They have still said that newsletters are a focus for them. So it's definitely still being referenced as a strong product and a strong area of focus. But you're right, I think there's less buzz around it and less like excitement over this being maybe a saving grace for advertising products, right? Like it's not a new product, obviously. It's not a new format and there's less innovation so much on that product as well. So I think until there's like some sort of like technological like advancement in the delivery or, you know, what you can measure from newsletters or, you know, maybe like being able to like send videos in the newsletter itself. I think it's a standard product, but not like a super spectacular, like place to be perhaps still being talked about by publishers from what I can tell, just not, you're right. Not nearly as, you know, glamorous as it was a couple years ago.
0: Yeah. It feels like newsletters have kind of moved into that, like where podcasting is too, where <laughs> obviously we have a podcast we're doing it right now um but like there are at this point so many podcasts on the market because so many companies have seen like oh there can be a business in podcasting that there becomes oversaturation i think with podcasting there's probably been oversaturation for a couple years at this point i feel like everyone and everyone's you know parents or you know friends launched a podcast during the pandemic because was just like oh i'm just sitting around with people let's just record this but then it's okay from a business you know standpoint how does that make sense and especially when you have like a Spotify rolling up an ad network for podcasts on its platform where and then also owning podcasts where they becomes a haves and have nots um and like I don't think emails there in terms of like there being an oversaturation but I think like there does run the risk of how many newsletters do I really want to subscribe to? Or why do I want to keep having this newsletter coming into my inbox? Like, you know, Casey Newton, who does platformer, he's talked about, I think, like dialing back his frequency. Like he was doing, I think, four or five newsletters a week. And I think he has pulled back to three because he wants to make sure that they are quality newsletters. Um, And I know for me, like I like – Weekly newsletters, I check out more often than I do like the daily newsletters like coming in my inbox. And so, so I'm wondering like if there becomes not so much a shakeout with like email or even podcast strategies, but whether those need to kind of undergo something of a rethink in 2023. Yeah, well,
1: I think you're right. The quality over quantity conversation, I think, is going to be a big one. And I think also from an advertising standpoint, with issues around like using open rate as a measurement for selling ads, like because of Apple's, um, I'm blanking on what they called it, but their update that because of that update, open rates became far less reliable because they were more inflated. So maybe from like a selling standpoint, it makes sense to focus on more of the quality and selling more of the content versus straight, Like data, like there has to be, I think, a little bit of a competitive edge because you're right. Maybe we're not at a saturation point. Although, if you look at my inbox, I feel like you would absolutely think we're at a saturation point with emails. But I do think that there. I mean, I also feel like newsletters have been kind of an add-on, you know, product for publisher sales teams for quite some time. But for those. Maybe like newsletter only publishers or newsletter first publishers they'll they will have to have some sort of differentiation to keep that revenue coming in because even during the pandemic um, you know revenue downturns CPMs for emails stayed pretty strong from what I remember so it'll be interesting I think that they've dropped a little bit Um, I'll have to you know check on that when we come back uh, or this year for a story perhaps but. I do think you're right there will have to be kind of a rethink on strategy there and not just focus on the quantity necessarily.
0: Yeah, and to your point around like email newsletters as an add-on product for advertisers like they've also been an add-on product for subscribers for you know subscription businesses at these media companies and I'm really curious like how subscription businesses change or need to evolve like you know on the the streaming side of things we've moved back into this bundling phase where you have disney with disney plus hulu plus and espn plus not hulu plus just hulu at this point Uh, it used to be called hulu plus but like selling that as a bundle um netflix is kind of going to be free for verizon play plus or plus play customers which is kind of like verizon's like digital bundle Service. And then on the publishing side, there's the New York Times that is very much putting together a bundle. And so it feels like pretty quickly on the publishing side of things, gone from, oh, we're going to start up a subscription business to now we need to create our subscription bundle. Is that the sense that you're getting?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that I want to really dig into. Next year is how publishers are approaching their subscriptions businesses, given what's happening in the economy and what's, you know, the strains that are being put on consumers' wallets, but also how they're differentiating their product. I mean, in order to keep people still subscribing, whether that is more content, how the role of registration walls and offering free content in exchange for email addresses or first party data how that impacts subscription business overall. Um, I do agree that bundling, and we've seen this a little bit for a couple years now. I think I wrote a couple years back about how, um, I believe it was The Post was bundling with like somewhat random companies, it seemed. Like it wasn't like other publishers. But like bundles have been around for a bit. I am curious how publishers approach their subscription businesses from a bundling standpoint externally, not just like finding ways to bundle their own products um, that are, you know, within their portfolio, but trying to sweeten the pot maybe by working with perhaps like a competitor to grow their subscriptions businesses too. I, I think there's an opportunity for it, but Uh, Yeah, it's one area that I'm really focused that I'm going to be really focused on next year is like the state of subscriptions in a non-election year. Um, Although I think the presidential election is going to start revving up a little bit of interest next year, perhaps. But either way, I am very curious to follow that that business. Commerce as well, but I think subscriptions will be a little challenged next year as well.
0: Yeah, and commerce will be interested in just on like to what extent that's a ba- bounce back year or not for commerce businesses. And then there's like the retail media network side of things where um, I think I saw like an AdWeek story today talking about how the IAB is planning to put together its standards for retail media networks. Um, so, like, what does that mean what impact do those standards have and then i think um sab and bergie were talking about in the year-end episode but just how it's not only like amazon but that you know walmart best buy target like these other retail media networks are actually like seizing some money away from amazon but i mean it's not also get, it's not only going to be amazon they're taking money from it's going to be publishers and publishers commerce businesses too and so What effect does that all have? Um, I guess like there's a whole host of things we haven't talked about that we could have talked about. We haven't talked about the cookie um, in part because like, I think I like a lot of other people, I'm not 100% sold on the third party cookie going away in 2024, but there is like You know, We just did a thing on the California Privacy Rights Act and these other four state privacy laws taking effect next year, where the use of the cookie becomes a lot more consequential for companies because these state laws are really going to put companies on the hook for if you're using third party cookies for targeted advertising, that now triggers a lot more requirements in terms of notice for opt out, ability to opt out. Um, than it had in the past. And we're seeing with the regulators that there's a lot more enforcement going on. We haven't talked about data clean rooms. Um, I think IAB is going to be releasing standards for data clean rooms in January. So at some point, you know, soon after this episode goes out, what I've been hearing from folks is like, well, our hope is that those standards just define what a clean room is because that term's already getting misappropriated and no one really knows what they're talking about. Um, but Kaylee, like for you, is there one you know topic or story that you plan to like really go after and be prioritizing at least in early 2023 to your point around like not trying to predict the year?
1: Yeah. I, I am really curious to figure out what's going to happen to consumer revenue lines and how much the economy is going to impact that level of publishers' businesses. We talked, again, we talked a lot so far about the current economic challenges impacting advertising revenue so far. And that oftentimes is one of the most significant, um, you know, revenue lines for publishers. But It's also one of the more significant issues in a, you know, challenging economy. But when you're looking at some of the more like, you know, diversified lines of revenue um, for publishers, I do think that there's going to be a lot of impact that we haven't quite covered yet. So again, getting into subscriptions, um, commerce businesses as well, how these challengers, like you said, retail media, how those challengers impact those revenue lines. And then even like licensing, whether it's like product or content licensing, I think, you know, these are underlying um, you know, revenue lines that may be marginal compared to advertising, but are still important. So I'm very much curious about the impact on consumer budgets and what this does for publishers, um, in the coming year. However, there are so many areas that, you know, I'm interested in covering and look forward to chatting with execs about in January. Um, what about you, Tim? What are you excited to cover next year?
0: Probably the streaming ad market. Like, you know, now that Netflix and Disney Plus are in that market, um, once Warner Brothers Discovery combines HBO Max and Discovery Plus into a single service, and I think they're targeting Spring, if I remember correctly. Um, and then, you know, obviously we, there's, you know, Peacock and Paramount Plus and Pluto and the Roku channel, and, you know, I throw YouTube into that mix too. I'm sure there's others that I'm, you know, forgetting about, but it just feels like, okay, the final pieces in terms of what the streaming ad market looks like were put in place in 2022. How, now that all the pieces are on the board, how does that all play out? And, you know, so far it seems like not super great based on how like Netflix's ad supported tier was doing in Q4, but at the same time, like I think expectations should have been probably fairly muted for Netflix's ad supported tier. Like it was, you know, 720p resolution, which may not mean much to a lot of people, but I think anyone who signed up for, you know, Netflix and were just like, wait, why is it not look as good as what I'm used to seeing elsewhere? Why does it look blurry? May have then decided, oh, you know, actually, I don't want to pay for this. Um, I think that could have played a part in Netflix not doing as well in Q4. But I think there's also just it hasn't promoted it as much. And so I'm curious to see how much promotion of these ad-supported streaming services there are next year. And then there's also just like on the nerdy technical side of things, there are some new standards with respect to streaming advertising that have come into the market or like taken gotten more attention in 2022. Um, pod bidding, the identity layer for CTV where there's been a lot of development or the beginnings of like significant development in terms of the infrastructure of streaming advertising and even CTV advertising specifically. And I'm curious to see how that what that bears out in 2023. And then also just like there's so much money in the TV market. Um, the broader TV market inclusive of streaming that with the advertising slowdown that we've talked about, like looking at that through the lens of the streaming ad market, I think will be pretty illustrative of the broader ad market. So it's one focus area, but a big one. So we'll have to see. But That is all for us for now in our future conversations on this show. We will be talking with guests from across the industry about how all of this plays out. So we look forward to speaking with them. Um, And yeah, thank you all for listening.
1: Thank you, Tim. And happy new year to our listeners.